2: Fair warning up front, Craig, I just watched Lars and the Real Girl, so emotions are running pretty high.
1: Oh my God, I haven't seen that in years. I I adore that film. I, I probably haven't it's seen it in years because so I know lovely. I will be reduced to absolute tears. Oh my god, oh, yeah, the dancing probably,
2: yeah. to talking gone. heads oh, There's just so much, so, so many layers in that movie Ryan Gosling movie for anyone who hasn't seen it before uh, So affecting And yeah, those last ten minutes I was just like For fuck's sake, this is this is too much So what I'm saying is great I think in terms of his You're going to have to yeah, carry gone. this episode basically
1: No problem for, for Ryan Gosling, for you David, anything
2: But don't let me get in the way of you about to gush all over Young yeah. Ryan there, I feel like that's what you're about to do
1: now I was just gonna say, like, when Lars Real Girl came out of Swat two thousand and seven, maybe I think it was like a one two punch of Half Nelson and then that came out, and I was like, well, he's the best actor in the world. <laughs> and I think I might have been right. <laughs> maybe we'll see uh, if we ever get
2: that nice guy sequel that I desperately crave. Well, then I'll probably be right oh. there with you. It's never going to happen, but I hope it does. Do you know
1: what? I I was in the mood for like uh, I was thinking there hasn't been a fucking really good comedy released in a long while, mainstream wise, I guess. So I was like during the week flicking through like top twenty comedies of the last decade. And there was a lot of like pretty ropey stuff on there. But nice guys kept cropping up in different lists. And I was like, yep, deserves to be there. Totally underrated. It's worth
2: a rewatch. Absolutely. But for now, it's showtime. my name is Dave Hanratty and there will be no encore welcome to episode 225 of the no encore music podcast on the headstuff podcast network it's a i guess summary ish autumn day out there craig how you doing are we into autumn apparently so people have this whole august is autumn thing yeah
1: but uh, you know the american thing is ridiculous the other way it's i think june 22nd to september 20th is summer that's like becoming standardized on the internet doesn't I'm just like sense. what like nah, i guess if you're in new more. york like the middle of september is still like gorgeous but yeah i'm not really on board i it was it was very summery this morning i was at the back um meditating before work some seagulls flew overhead squawking and i was just like oh dublin <laughs> it just reminded me of dublin <laughs> as i sat in Kildare. <laughs>
2: Someday, man. Someday soon. Someday soon, for Someday. sure.
1: It should be noted, by the way. I
2: have to give a very nice happy birthday belated shout out to the one and only, our Sonic architect, Adam Shanahan, who turned the ripe old age of 17 last week. So congratulations, Adam. Woo! Oh, well done. Sweet 17. <laughs> Sweet 17. Uh, anyway, so here's the thing about Adam, right? I mean, like, uh, I put this out on Twitter, but like, Craig and I haven't been in the same room. I, haven't, I don't think I've seen your, your beautiful face in person, Craig, since the Choice Prize, probably
1: choice prize was the last night I was out properly so it's been a while
2: yeah that was like the first week of, of March so it's been it's been that long so we haven't been in the same room for a podcast we haven't been to the Headstuff podcast studio at all we've been doing all this from home with our upgraded equipment thank you very much by the way to everyone who has helped out with uh, with us on uh, our Patreon page it's patreon.com slash no encore if you want to help us out there yeah. we want to help support the show valuable it, it really really is and like it's a sincere thank you to everyone who has kind of pitched in so far it, Like, it has made the world a difference and like i guess a combination of that and a combination of adam somehow putting up with us in these endless zoom calls that we do week on week he makes it sound like we're pretty much sitting right next to each other but we're not because that would be very dangerous and it's all about social distancing (laughs) and so podcast distancing is is part of that but the, the moral of the story guys is happy birthday adam we love you
1: we do indeed happy birthday adam okay. As he claps um, himself. <laughs> yeah, listen, I mean, like, he has uh, And a nice message on Zoom saying, love you guys. Yeah, it's, it, it's he's a, a it's he's podcast always a full of love. Sort.
2: But I don't know if it's going to be a podcast full of love, Craig, when we get to our <laughs> album review this week. We're going to be reviewing Fontaine's DC, Ireland's Answer to Oasis, and their new record, A Hero's Death. That's coming up later in the show.
1: Hold on, were they Oasis? I thought they were Blur. I'm or is it interchangeable? Sure. It or, wasn't, does, it wasn't or does the comparison does not make any sense? No, <laughs> yeah. it
2: wasn't made very clear in the uh, definitely not at all trolling and clickbaity Irish Times article that ran on the day of the release of the record. But we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the record. It's all coming later on. And this week's top five is one that you chose, Craig. Rivalries slash feuds I've written down here.
1: Yeah, inspired by the um Irish blur versus Oasis style um rivalry we have in the chart battles at the moment. And the listener is um has got one up on us because they will know who ultimately triumphed as it is Friday as this goes out. Also for anyone will it be who, the Coronas. Yeah, I was about to say no. for anyone
2: who doesn't know, the other band in question is in fact the Coronas. So, the Coronas,
1: yeah. yeah. Who were who, you know, immediately came out with Oh, we're, you know, the unluckiest band in the world because we're named the Coronas. But actually it's been quite good for them. They They've Got a lot of coverage based on the fact that they are dustily named, and um, they've been quite savvy about it as they have throughout their career,
2: yeah. They have a very political statement from you there, Craig, as they um <laughs> as they tour the country in, a, in an ice cream van, by the way, which just sounds dangerous yeah. if you ask me in this day and age. But uh, we won't be reviewing their album, it's called True Love Waits, which feels questionable given that Radiohead song in the same name that took years and years to arrive, but you know, I'm sure it's just as good anyway. Rivalries and feuds, Craig, tell me about it, top five.
1: Uh, Yeah, so it's kind of quite a wide definition, as it tends to be on this show. Um, It uh, it was an interesting one to dive into. It was a lot more kind of research-heavy than I think some of our... Like, it's not just picking our favourite songs. So it's kind of... You're getting into some pretty intense sagas. It was pretty illuminating for me. Some of my choices are, like, maybe not the obvious ones. Some that I was kind of, like... uh, I kind of knew there was something there, but hadn't read up on it, and just was kind of baffled by the kind of surreal encounter some of these artists had. So yeah, it was it was interesting in that way. I will say, like, as I say, some some obvious ones kinda left out. Top five is kind of becoming my whims of the week. Like I, I don't know, all rhyme and reason goes out the window kind of Wednesday evening as I'm, like, scrambling to get the five in order. How did you find it?
2: Uh, I, I'm very much enjoying my, my push for people to support us on Patreon and you turning around and being like, ah, it's just a bit of a whim, isn't it? Um, He means well this year. <laughs> He's just one of those guys. He's enigmatic. I found this to be very fucking difficult, dude, I'll be honest with you, because, I mean, you threw it at me at the weekend. I wanted, like, here's how my brain works. Because, you know, the album that we're reviewing is uh, Hero's Death, I wanted either songs about heroes or songs about death. That's as far as my brain could stretch to this week in terms of a top five. There would
1: have been a lot of Enrique Iglesias, which is um, (laughs) organic idea, not an unfamiliar name in our top fives. (laughs) I
2: found this to be tricky enough. I think I I think you allude to something there though that I wonder is true for both of our lists because, as ever, I don't know what's on yours, you know what's on mine. But here's the thing: there's some very obvious ones, and I wanted to steer away from those. Some ones that we've talked to death. Some ones that are just like. Also, a lot of them can be a bit kind of like I don't know how fair it is to really delve into this one. So, and even like even in terms of like some genre exercises, you could be like I think you know like the hip hop genre for example, like you could fill a top five, but is that fair? You know, so I was I was trying to be a bit broad with it, and I was also trying to be a bit broad with the concept as well. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, That's later in the show. I'm looking forward to getting into that one. Uh, There'll be a brand new episode of No Popcorn arriving in a few days' time as well. An episode all about Netflix classic Eurovision. So you've got a couple of days after this podcast comes out before that one lands and gives you time to go and watch the film. Not necessarily a recommend for the film, more of a recommend for the show itself. So that's coming in the next few days. And as noted one more time, patreon.com slash noencore if you want to throw us some sweet, sweet money. Uh, Craigo, you've uh, dominated the news yes. section this week and that you've put most of it together. So why don't you kick us off?
1: Let's start with a very tabloidy story, which I kind of dig. Um, it's a bit of a dig at a man that is beloved um, around these parts. It's Gary Barlow. Um, he seems like a lovely bloke, although he is one of the most famous um, musical Tories out there. Which kind of, I don't know, puts a weird slant on things. And this doesn't paint him in a brilliant light. Although I will say it's a kind of mirror article, and I think they're looking for a bit of sensational, you know, some details there that aren't quite there. Doesn't Gary Barlow sound has been like battling the mirror? Seems odd. <laughs> has been battling bat lovers. Those pesky con- conservationists, Dave. Um, he's won this case now uh, over plans to demolish part of a £6 million mansion uh, in order to house his fleet of posh cars. There's a little red top getting in there for you. There's also the use of, um, unironic use of the word bod in there somewhere, which is hilarious. Uh, he was granted planning permission to take down an area of his huge Cotswolds home uh, despite opposition from animal rights activists over bats, So basically, people that were against his plans um, were claiming that his property could be home to rare species of bats, as well as great crested newts, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Dave. Of course, yeah. Um, And their habitats are like protected under law. The creature is it a creature? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a creature of some sort. Uh, he's trying to build a plush garage to shelter his many luxury cars. There it is again, including a hundred, <laughs> a hundred thousand pound Range Rover. Wow! Oh, he's got a black cab as well, apparently, which he uses to get in and out of London, avoid those congestion charges. He really is a Tory, actually. That's <laughs> <laughs> like fucking hell. He seems so nice.
2: I feel like um, um... yeah. I feel like, you know, as with every tabloid story, yeah, there's a certain level of elasticity to some of these uh, <laughs> crimes, I suppose. Also, I got to feel like in, in 2020, he picked a good year to go up against bats, didn't he? I feel like, you know, like, like anti-bat propaganda is quite strong these days for reasons that should be fairly well established by now. Um, yeah, this, this seems like, a, like an open and shut case for the man. And ultimately, you know, like... Do I do I do I care what what Gary Barlow does so long as he's paying his taxes? Is he paying his taxes? Isn't that a, an accusation? I don't know. Hopefully,
1: <laughs> no, he is that might be a story for another We're day. Not about to allege anything. On Mir- this show. Mirror journalists, get on it. As far um, as I'm concerned, anyone who
2: has written uh, "Patience and Rule the World" gets a free pass. And not, back for not on taxes though. Listen,
1: the, the hits <laughs> keep coming. He <laughs> can live whatever lifestyle he wants. It, it it is a kind of open and shut case. Uh, but the local council have um, kind of said, listen. I know it's COVID times, but not all bats. So they granted a permission, but um, Barlow will have to install at least one bat box and a bird nesting feature in the new structure, which is, it's, it's good news all around, right? For pop stars, for conservationists and for, you know, trodden upon animals.
2: And also uh, tabloid hit pieces for sure, you know, let, let's not forget the real winners here. I mean, I guess there is an interesting kind of, you know, battle between music and media at all times. That could have been a top five all of its own. But instead, we'll press on with the news, Craig. Paul McCartney's given out. A man who's usually full of just joy and, you know, good cheer. What could possibly be bothering him?
1: It's Las Vegas residencies. He's, he's really being like, I I very much enjoy Paul McCartney when he's in totally like dismissive mode. Particularly like dismissive of his peers' mode, um, so he, he's he's um he's been talking to GQ. It's this new extensive feature with the Beatles icon, um, and he's dismissed the idea of going on a a Vegas residency. He said Vegas is where you go to die, which I think we've probably said um in more charitable ways on this show before. But it always seems like a bit of a cynical move, a bit of an easy ride, and it's totally like at least a retirement plan. Um, but, you know, inadvertently, or maybe advertently, he's taken shots at the likes of Elton John, loads of his contemporaries that have done these Vegas residencies. He says uh, it's something he's been trying to avoid his whole life. Nothing attracts um the idea to him. Um, Vegas is where you got to die, isn't it? It's the elephant's graveyard. Uh, he was also talking about Bruce Springsteen's like very well-received um, Broadway show. And he's saying, yeah, I'm not really sold on that idea either. Um, some people would like me to do it. As they say, I've got plenty of stories and plenty of songs. One of the things that's holding me back at the moment is that Bruce has just done it. And then he kind of admits that, yeah, like I do a kind of solo bit in the middle of my show anyway. And it's a lot of work and you kind of have to chat. And it's, yeah, I'm not doing that for an entire show. So I, I like the side of McCartney. Like, as you say, he's like always kind of sunny and light. There's a bit of bite to him, which is usually the more interesting kind of funny side. And uh, yeah, that's what we're seeing here.
2: Yeah, it's a slap in the face to the likes of Britney Spears and of course, Matt Goss of Bros fame, who (laughs) has spent many of the last couple of decades, I guess, performing in a Vegas residency in which people have compared him to a modern day Frank Sinatra. For more on that, by the way, go check out our No Popcorn episode on Bros after the screaming stops. And if you've never seen that documentary, you really got to check it out. Have you seen it yet? It's fucking amazing
1: yeah it's sensational i checked it out recently enough um <laughs> it's something else you know there was a, a Spando ballet version like a mockumentary done which is like a piss take and i'm like i'm just like it's one of those it's like um parodying trumpets like it's totally redundant there's no point it's not going to be funnier when you script it um so jog on Spando ballet
2: Absolutely. But no, it's much better when you let things happen naturally. Uh, And I guess, you know, like, you know, you raise a point there, Craig, you talk about, you know, whether it's a documentary or whether it's a reality show in which things can be scripted. Were you a fan of the Osbournes back in the day? I want to say the early 2000s?
1: I mean, yeah, a fan is probably a stretch. I do remember being in like, I think it was my first year of secondary school when it was like debuting and there was quite, uh, there was a big level of like anticipation around it, as far as I recall. It just seemed like a kind of, crazy idea for a show it was kind of funny in parts maybe you know like the trailers were good i don't i can't say i was a huge fan but i mean it was a, an enormous success um for everyone involved uh not involved was ozzy's eldest daughter amy um which kind of it was wasn't really you know much of a secret that she decided that, hey i don't want to have my entire life be put on display um, with these crazy bunch of people I call my family. I always kind of respected her for it. Um, and she's just been talking to um, a New York radio station. She's a musician now, which I did not realize. Maybe if she'd been on the show, we'd be more familiar with her musical career, although it didn't really help Kelly. Um, but yeah, she's just been saying this. And um, for me personally um for who i was as far as morally um i had to give myself the chance to actually develop into a human being as opposed to just being remembered for being a teenager uh it didn't really line up with what i saw my future as which is uh, very sensible but also makes you kind of concerned about the upbringing right like that she was taking that decision and not her parents who were the stars of the show
2: well, I was always more of a, a Hogan Knows Best man myself, which I very much... <laughs> oh, yeah. Foddered here. fact, the wrong problematic horse there, I feel. <laughs> Like, My god, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah it's, 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 that, that was a grim reality for sure for everybody involved. Uh, Osborne's, yeah, I never really gave it too much of a go. It was kind of one of those things that was always on. You're right, though, there was a lot of buzz. I mean, if you transplant yourself back to the early offs, as some people might describe them, um, there was an awful lot of buzz about it, and I didn't really understand why. It's probably like responsible for giving Sharon Osborne a bit of a media personality career, didn't she? Go on to like Factor? yeah, I think that was
1: the big breakout success yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they seem, I mean, she seems at times a bit much. I don't know. Ozzy seems like a kind of sweet guy. It was fairly tame. There was a lot of kind of cursing and stuff, but they actually seemed like a loving family as opposed to a lot of these shows. So I don't know. That's the matter.
2: All right. That's that's some very sweet sentiment there for you, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> very
1: philosophical this week. I'm like, Apparently so. Yeah. After my meditation in the garden with the seagulls.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I need to know some more about that, though. Do you listen to music during this, or do you just need the sound of cawing birds overhead?
1: I don't need anything, Dave. I just need myself. I I look inwards and occasionally get distracted by seagulls, and then occasionally get distracted by other noises and get mildly annoyed, and then it, it, the whole thing is kind of ruined. Doesn't I'm wearing like very comfortable you, trousers today as well, by the way, Dave. Hold on a sec. I know this is audio, but look I don't at need these
2: to. Oh yeah, they do look comfortable. Okay, they look like pajamas. They're yeah, a white and stripe um... <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know, <laughs> which is everyone listening.
1: <laughs> which is everyone they're extremely comfortable uh they arrived the other day went on a bit of a shopping spree to cheer myself up got a new suit which i probably won't wear till september what do you what do you
2: (laughs) detail this entire shopping spree i want to know i want to know what's in this
1: um well it was a 60 percent off sale um so uh, of course i stumbled across it like two hours before the deadline so i panicked and then like impulse bought stuff i didn't need um i've got a a kind of top suit (laughs) And I'm also bringing back, once Once this is all over, I am definitely bringing back double-breasted suits. I've got a darker suit. I think it's, it's working. It's not too 80s. Um, We'll see. I don't know. I could still send it all back. Maybe I should send it all back.
2: I feel like not only is this not suit weather, but are you wearing like a suit around the fucking house? I mean, you're you're working from home, right?
1: I'm working from home. No, I haven't been full suiting it whatsoever. Um, I've suit trousers because... I find them as comfortable as like sweatpants. To be honest, I don't. I don't own it's a pair Gary of Gary Barlow Dave, thing as well, you've you know. never
2: said. By the <laughs> way, fair enough. Get yourself a posh car next, why don't you? So the suit is aspirational, is what I'm hearing. This is like I assume it's hanging in some kind of framed box in front of you. You're like someday, one of these days. Yeah,
1: there's um, many display lights on it. It's um, it's more of a shrine, a suit shrine. Okay, well that's,
2: look, whatever relaxes you. I guess on the subject of relaxation and the subject of, you know, reality TV of a sort, you'd be delighted to know that David Attenborough is teaming up with Mercury Music Prize champion from last year, Dave, for Planet Earth, a celebration. Eight wildlife clips from previous stuff that David Attenborough has done. And Dave will provide the music. He's, I've always been a fan. Of powerful natural history documentaries, Dave said. Who hasn't? This is a program yes. where nature and music come together, so it was only right that I lent my talent, my time, and my attention to this project. It was a pleasure to work alongside Sir David Attenborough and Hans Zimmer. It's a real all-star affair, Craig. David Attenborough can't stop. That's going to be cool.
1: <laughs> he won't stop. He refuses to stop. Although in fairness, I mean he's a great man, but it's not like he's heading out into the wilderness anymore. He's just sitting at home recording a bit of audio, right? He's
2: very old. He's Craig. earned the
1: rights to do
2: that. <laughs> you want to send him out there? What are you What are you
1: thinking? <laughs> no, I don't. But yeah, I like. It. I, I I'm glad that he's still doing it, man. Best in the game. Okay. Um. As for, <laughs> I am quite excited about this because I think Dave will do a good job. Like I think he's got that deft touch where this could be a totally cringy thing or this could be very powerful. I don't know.
2: What's going on in Nashville, Craig? I'm looking at this story and I'm and I'm and I'm finding it all very strange.
1: Yeah, it's not like the hugest story, but the detail of it kind of surprised me. So obviously, with COVID kind of restricting everything, um, a lot of musicians have been recording albums at home and releasing stuff that way. Uh, Taylor Swift, who we recently reviewed, um, no gigs going. Um, Nashville's had to lift this weird home studio rule though, um apparently in Nashville which is I guess country music city capital of the world um, you can't you can't record at home or certainly you can't um, record um, under certain restrictions or if it's being kind of you know if it's if it's paid for and all that kind of stuff if, if it's like official studio business I guess because it's such an industry that they don't want the kind of powerhouse Studios to be hit they've lifted these restrictions Now, so people can actually get on with kind of, um, you know, creating music and stuff. There's a new bill in place now. Um, apparently, it says the original regulations created a hardship on residents seeking additional income to survive in a city with skyrocketing costs of living. Um, and yeah, there's some kind of stipulations around noise levels when exactly you can record and stuff. Maybe it's a lot more to do with that and the fact that these could be in residential areas. But it does seem like it's it was put in place to kind of protect big studios, um, labels and stuff and keep that kind of industry chugging along as is. But it seems like a weird thing, right? <laughs> to not be able to record at home in the fucking country music capital of the world.
2: Sounds to me, Craig, like an endless array of political red tape. Now, as noted at the top of the show, No Encore is indeed part of the Headstuff Podcast Network family. Given that 2020 is in such a state of disarray, to the extent that governmental bodies feel just as clueless as the rest of us, you might be wondering, is there a decent politics podcast knocking around? One that drills down into the potential political precariousness and ramifications concerning everything from millennials to UFOs to possibly country music-based home studio recordings or the right to not do it, I don't know? The answer is a resounding yes.
1: When it comes to understanding political issues, I am a self-confessed toddler. That's why I've enlisted the help of Steve, my politically savvy drinking buddy, to help me better understand politics. Every couple of weeks, we get together and record on topics like what is the politics of language? What is Watergate? How the internet is killing democracy? We take these big issues and we break them down into silly little comedic bite-sized bits. If you like the sound of that, then search for What Am Politics in your podcast app of choice or find us here on the Headstuff Podcast Network.
2: Big issues indeed Here's an even bigger one The second album from Fontaine's DC It's called A Hero's Death This song is called Televised Mind And we're going to review it Swipe your
0: thoughts from away. Turn ideas a cabaret
2: Mind. That was Televised Mind, Fontaine's DC. Craig with Patrick, what's all that about?
1: <laughs> I feel like these intros are getting slightly more loaded every week. <laughs> right, so, yep, yeah, that's taken from, as you say, A Hero's Debt, which uh, refers to the statue of Kukulin um, on his last legs on the album cover. Fontaine's DC, um, okay. Who are Fontaine's DC? Right, so when I used to like frequent the drowned sound uh music forums, there was this trope. Um, like if talk turned to like real music and you know guitar music, the trope was kind of like people just say, Oh yeah, you know, proper lads with proper haircuts and proper tunes. I guess fair to say that Fontaine's DC are proper, Dave. <laughs> they are big, though their childhoods were small. They're a Dublin Five piece, um, as well we know, uh, former BIM students, um, probably what could be classed as a Workman's Club success story at this point. They've had a pretty quick rise. Um, whoa, 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 this new- whoa, 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 I thought we were a Workman's Club success story, Craig. <laughs> we crawled out of the Workman's Club, so Fontaine CC could walk. Um, this is their their second album in kind of quick succession, which I do love. I appreciate that they're they're back at it, and yeah, they return kind of as critical darlings, um, getting everything from you know glowing Guardian reviews to Jimmy Fallon appearances. Um, Dog World, the debut, um, got great notices. As I say, um, the, when we reviewed it here, uh, I talked about it as an album that showed a lot of great promise. Um, whilst being slightly bewildered, um, about the re- reaction in, in certain other quarters, um, I think the poetry thing from lead singer Green Chatton was a bit of a sticking point for many, um, good and bad. Um, so he'd, you know, talk about smoking carols, um, which people loved. Then by the time he got to the closer, which was Dublin City Sky, he was kind of sounding like the musical equivalent of like Carol's gift shop a bit to me. My main problem was that the influences musically were kind of right there in their sleeves, which is, you know, no bad thing for um, a bunch of young musicians, but it was a bit distracting. I thought there was plenty of room for, for growth. Since then, they've been recording in L.A., there's been all that acclaim, they've been touring, then obviously not. Um they were very nice to my uncle when he bumped into him in Charles de Gaulle so that means another star at the end of this review. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely bunch hey, at of that. you're honest about
2: it. Like like like, like I appreciate the uh, the transparency Craig.
1: Yeah and you know the new interviews have like the Guardian one I think it's the Guardian uh, Mark Beaumont anyway. Um opens up his his interview by saying, you know, Green's looking out across North Dublin towards the tranquility of the Irish Sea. And then Green's first quote is about how if you can find the horizon, you can, you know, you easy, easily get a sense of freedom. And it's like pure Bonoisms, um, which is kind of like the territory he's creeping into a little bit. Um, David, were you swept up at second time of asking?
2: I wasn't, no. Uh, and I've been a bit of a critic <laughs> of this band for sure. Yeah. Um, but I should temper my wisdom <laughs> i
1: guess uh, by <laughs> <What> like, <line>?
2: <laughs> <laughs> by quickly adding that um this record is a, a, a definite improvement on Roll. it's a much better album i think uh, in a lot of ways and one of those ways is it sounds better if it's if you let this album run into the previous record you can hear it straight away and i think with that i think with that one as far as i'm aware there was like a fairly rushed ish recording process and so maybe time and money was against them, um, despite their big proclamations of how big they were going to be. Uh, essentially, like you know, you can hear on those songs like how thin the vocals sound in particular. Whereas on this one, everything sounds really fucking nice. Everything sounds very well put together and very well crafted. The drumming is gorgeous throughout. Um, and a lot of the times, when the drums and the guitars get to just kind of go off in their little wanders together, um, it gets into horror's territory, which I obviously approve of quite greatly. Um, the vocals sound better, he sounds better, Um, so on the whole, everything sounds better. It sounds more cohesive as an album. I think that there's patience here and there's some good dexterity. Uh, I find the vocals a lot less abrasive and annoying. Um, So on, on paper, and listen, musicality has never really been in doubt. These guys are clearly very talented musicians, it's what they do with it that you may or may not like. For me the vocals have always been the big sticking point that really I can't quite get into them. Um, all that said, though, I don't think this is a very good album. I think it's okay. I think it's it's just fine. I think it's a bit too dour and monotonous and repetitive for me to really appreciate it. Um, I don't fully buy Green's caterwauling about you know, uh, oh the fans. We're really going to test them on this one, and I don't know if they're going to they're going to be on board with us. So I guess we're going to find out. It's it's not that much of an acid test. Um, it's just there's not as many kind of straight up bangers, quote unquote. I suppose. I think Time has been kind to the lead single, The Hero's Death. I think it works well when it arrives halfway through the record. Um, But there's just not a lot here and it flits between, you know, kind of a a dreary whipping boy impression. And then all of a sudden it's a, it's a kind of a standard Stone Roses impression. So you're like, cool. I mean, you're going through the songbook here, lads and fair play. Uh, It's fine. It's, it's just, it's, it's not all that compelling. I didn't, dislike it the way I disliked the previous but I don't love it and I don't think it's remarkable and I don't think it's very strong it's I can understand more I suppose why people like this so much but at the same time it does just evolve into UK Irish centric indie rock by numbers a lot of the time and I understand that maybe there's a darth of that out there for you but I've heard all this before and I've heard it a long time ago and I'm still all not still all not that impressed
1: that's some um, very tempered wisdom Dave thank you (laughs) You're very welcome. To your to your f- first point, uh, which I completely agree with, um, it's Dan Carey back on production. I guess they had more time this time around because it is very coherent sonically, uh, lush in places. There's a richness and kind of depth that is new uh, from the kind of synths, the strings, um, really deliberate pacing on some of the ballads. Um yeah, Whipping Boy is a good shout. You know, Virgin Prunes as well. There's like, in, in spots this, it can be quite gloomy and dour, but when it's working, it's got this kind of like narcotic, like faded opulence to it. Uh, it's pretty well sequenced as well. Um, uh, When the title track arrives, it kind of, in context, it works a whole lot better. Um, It's a total kind of change of tone and pace. And yeah, that works for me. And Green is doing kind of interesting things at times and in spots here um so he's you know on some of the highlights he's a bit like a kind of an early Morrissey like wandering off melody it's more than a few kind of golden brown-esque like fade outs um very kind of 80s sounding stuff early smiths I got a good bit of you know Morrissey deep cuts I was thinking how much Morrissey loves Damien Dempsey um just kind of is a huge fan of his point of view and his voice. And, you know, com- a lot of these songs combined with that voice are maybe Morrissey's wet dream then, because it's like Smith's fronted by a Damien Dempsey type. Sorry for conjuring up images of a Morrissey wet dream. But um, yeah, when it works, it works. If you're being uncharitable, the voice does is a sticking point for me at, at times. Um there's a couple of numbers here the more straight ahead ones which again sound like he's doing like a, a almost like a born slippy like impression but like through a filter of do you remember when Dustin the Turkey released a bunch of albums in the 90s like that kind of stuff that is a bit harsh
2: <laughs> I actually was about to intervene of all like, me of all people I was about to be like I think that's a little bit too harsh <laughs>
1: dial <Don't laughs> down Craig do you know for your wisdom it's, it's in no it's in no way the accent it's um how narrow it is at times and how one note, and, you know, if, when he opens up, um, there's kind of hidden depths there. And, like, I, I think, you know, looking ahead to future releases, hopefully he explores more with his range, because I think it is there. Um, and I think he is kind of central to their appeal. I get it. Like, we talked about Bleeding Heart Pigeon's album, another, you know, um, notable Irish release from this year in terms of guitar rock. Um and I think the songs on that are a lot better than the songs here, but I think Fontaines DC do have something, and it's like an extra ounce of like magic if they use it correctly. And I think that might be green. As it's accomplished as the musicians are. I think a lot of the riffs aren't that memorable elsewhere. They they wander into um yeah, horrors kind of territory, that psychedelic thing, that drone thing. But sometimes I wish they had a bit more teeth to them. Other times when they're straight ahead, it's kind of like a proto-martyr thing, but not quite. They never quite push it far enough, so it's it's all a bit middling. Um, the opening trio, for example, just don't quite work for me at all. I think they're very one-piece. Um, things really pick up in the middle section. Um, I went on a, a canal run during the week with this as we were entering that section. And as I like was avoiding puddles along the old Royal Canal, which is <laughs> like a Fontaine's lyric, I was like, yeah, this is working. Like, You Said came on, and I was like, yep, this is one of the more accomplished things they've done. The Whipping Boy um, kind of comparisons were in full force. Um, oh, Such a Spring, I think, is a lovely melody. Lyrically, Did you enjoy that biff. melody,
2: Craig? Did you enjoy the guitar riff? That is essentially the exact same guitar riff as Nothing Else Matters by Metallica.
1: Oh, it and is, isn't it? That descending thing. It's yeah, just the way it it kind of is. Like,
2: yeah, those chords.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's And, you know, he's down at the Docklands and they're drinking American wine. It's it's all a bit that. Um, but it works for me. And then the juxtaposition with the title track, totally on board. Um, living in America, like a lot of the songs are like them on tour and, you know... Looking for things to write about, given the kind of whirlwind that's happened around them the last year. Or so, I like that musically. I like the way his voice kind of dips down there, and it becomes like this bed of like didgeridoo sounds almost. It's kind of fun. It sounds it, that kind of cribs from all the small things by Blink, which totally works. Um, I was not born is more of the kind of straight ahead, just in, instant skip stuff for me. It, it like as much as they've, like, really interesting, you know, horrors, influences, Brian Jonestown Massacre, um, more ambitious stuff, that sounded like an Oasis kind of Lou Reed rip-off, like Mucky Fingers. Do you remember that song on Don't Believe the, the Truth or whatever? It's just, nah, instant skip. The last two tracks, I think, are the best, where they get a bit more experimental, and some of those Beach Boys influences, which they talked about, or they were kind of bigging up when they were in LA, um, actually start to seep through. I thought Sonny... Sonny was kind of lyrically quite accomplished, um, a bit experimental. It sounded like something that they would finesse and come up with a better better version of in the future. And then I think that was the next song, No, which is probably, it's a, it's a serious song. It's it's probably the one time they sounded like the band I've been reading about. Um, I think it's a pep talk to like one of Green's family members. There's a bit of like demo, love yourself today stuff going on. There's something of like the Cranberries about it. He's he's actually soaring slightly, and it opens up quite nicely. It closes really well. I think those two songs are maybe some of the last things they put together, which bodes really well again. Um, so the signs are good, but I think the sentiment for me is it's kind of like with the debut, where it's like there's yeah, there's signs there. They're as you say, accomplished musicians. I think Green has something there um, when you get away from some of the cringier elements. Um, Six of the, what, 11 I get on with totally here. The last song elevates it. Um, I think there is a kind of aspect of the accent really um, working for people overseas, maybe slightly. Like I'm always reminded of that. I think it was Conan O'Brien when he was filming in, in Ireland and he had a joke about how you know, everyone says it the Irish are poets. It's like they're not actually poets. It's just like whatever kind of rubbish they come out with. It sounds kind of melodic and great. So it's just like he had a joke like that, and I'm kind of think that's a bit like green. I don't know. I I totally know why the Guardian are getting hung up on this and not like other like London bands. Do you know what I mean? I think they'd be far less charitable. Um, but signs are kind of good. Um, I'm going to give this uh six i think it's a it's a six pack of cans for the lads
2: Wow. Um, I'm more aware at you just powering through your review there, like going track by track and then throwing out the <laughs> score. And I'm, I think I've only said like one little burst of my own, but that's okay, Craig, you know, you, you, you do how you do it. But here's the thing, right? Let's talk Go about on. the idea of creating a moment. Cause we talked about this last week with Taylor Swift and how like, you know, we're in this mode where like, you know, we want narrative, you know, we want like a fucking campaign. We want a package and Fontaine's for an awful lot of critics and an awful lot of people fit that bill. Um, and yeah. once again, we find ourselves like seeing reviews of this record that are like perfect scores. And they actually got a, a decimal point higher than Taylor Swift on Pitchfork. So start whatever war you need to there, guys. But here's the thing, right? I think I'd be a lot more. And this, I, I don't want to. This isn't as tethered as maybe it sounds. I'm judging the record on the record. I'm judging the music on the music and the vocals on the vocals and the songs and the songs. But I wish that I wasn't being like you know, sustained against this fucking constant barrage of just people telling me how revolutionary this is, because I'm like, it isn't. Like, it really isn't. And that's fine. That's totally okay. Um, Bands with potential are always exciting, you know, and there still is potential with these guys. Stop talking like they're the fucking finished article. Stop telling me that this album is great when you've heard it twice. Stop telling me that it's fucking perfect when it clearly isn't. Stop telling me that they're like the the saviors of rock and roll when they're not even a rock and roll band. I mean, like, I just am bored, so bored by this fucking advertising campaign that goes on around them. And I think it actually affects them to their detriment if that's the stance that you're on. But of course, it's doing wonders for their, you know, their fucking, their column inches and I'm sure the sales, you know, apparently it's like, it's on course to possibly be um, Ireland's first number one album in the UK since, uh, actually last year, but before that it was like 20 years. Yeah. So.
1: Did you see the latest with that? It's um, Taylor Swift, getting involved, yeah? <laughs> yeah, Taylor Swift is um, rush releasing physical CD copies of the album in the hopes of like kind her. of nabbing it. Wouldn't yeah, be like her. So... <laughs> Uh, in that battle Fontaine's all the way wants an Irish success story um, so yeah we'll, well see listen, I guess I, you'll I want, know as you listen
2: I, I want to like this band you know I mean I've, I've taken lots and lots of shots at them but ultimately it's because I'm just not all that convinced and also I think that they can fucking take it and again as I always say whether I'm talking about Hozier or whoever I'd interview them tomorrow they obviously probably wouldn't want to speak to me but that's fine um, because like I don't need. I don't think it needs to be a fucking prerequisite that I love you in order to speak with you about your, your art um, but I'm not really getting the art here. Here. Middling was a word you used earlier on. I think I'm right there with you. I like the midsection of this record as well quite a bit, but not enough to really kind of cling to it and go back to it more. I mean, this wasn't a short to listen to at all. I think I listened to it about 10 times over the course of the week, but I just think that it's just a little bit too bogged down in its own mire. And I appreciate that you want to make a more serious statement and you want to show growth and maturity. And those things are definitely here. There's also a bit of contradictory statements going on with regards to the whole Beach Boys influence thing, because I've read another se- section of quotes where Supposedly they recorded a full album and scrapped that one and then wrote this one. But then you hear about how green had an album playback for dog roll, you know, so, um, confronted with the possibility of future failure, was he that he got up and paced the room and wrote a hero's death on the spot just to prove that he could? And it's like, well, well, w- what stayed over and what didn't, and what 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 commands and what doesn't? And of course, it was also quite about the whole thing of like you know, we we wrote this album that was so LA, it was so polished, like it was almost too good.
1: <laughs> and you're like, okay, right, come on, <laughs> fuck yeah. Off. So did I, lads. So did I. <laughs>
2: and then of course they have like you know they did like a manifesto for We Transfer, and you're like. Okay, this is this this is too real for someone, but I don't know. I mean like there's just so much kind of noise around them and it's almost like if you know you're either with us or you're against us, which doesn't even necessarily come from them either. I mean you read the you read the interviews and generally like you know they come across as like well-intentioned lads, you know, um who clearly are in it for the love of the game and that's great. But I'm just not hearing much here.
1: Yeah, you know, um track number four, A Lucid Dream. It was initially titled A Lucid Dream of Nineteen Sixteen. <laughs> because the song is about him thinking that in a past life he was there at 1916 and in a few greens like yeah I decided to cut that bit off because um, not because it would be controversial in say England but um, it would be like disrespectful in Ireland and people would take it up the wrong way and so he's very aware and like he said previously in interviews I can't speak you know for Irish people or blah 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 he's very aware of that kind of backlash uh, around kind of Concepts of culture and how much they really mean it, quote unquote. uh I think you're right. I think it like there's been a lot of sustained press around it, and what side you come down on it, I guess, comes down to whether you're um you've missed the kind of bands that like to self mythologize. Um, do you know what I mean? And, and talk a big game, and whether you're like, yeah, we need those kind of characters, we need saviors um of rock and roll, or whether you think yeah that stuff was maybe slightly childish, or music has moved on or it's a different era, different genres are in the spotlight and that's a good thing. Um, whatever attitude I guess you have to that kind of, that argument um, will definitely inform how you feel about Fontaine's DC. Because, you know, if, when I was a teenager reading Q magazine, um, if, you know, they had it popped up, I would have been like, probably lapping it up. I don't know how much i in love with the music I would have been, but I would have been like, yeah, these are interesting guys. This music needs more of this. Um I think I'm at a stage now where I'm like, yeah, I've kind of seen these, you know, big talking quotes before. Um, I've seen so many bands, countlessly try and self-mythologize and maybe I'm a bit jaded with it all, but um, a lot of other people won't be. And I guess that's their audience.
2: Yeah, fair enough. And look, it's good that he's self aware. Like it's good that we're probably we're probably not gonna hear him on a on a British Army podcast anytime soon or anything. <laughs> so, so that's pretty good. Good for him. And look, listen, I wish these guys well. They really, really do. There's another kind of factor here yeah. as well before I wrap up, I'll say this. It applies to the Fontaines, it applies to Dermot Kennedy and people like that who are gonna be pushed into relentless touring cycles. You got the sense from reading some of the interviews with Fontaines that they needed a bit of a break, perhaps. And like maybe this record has come at a good time in terms of the way the world is. Maybe it gives them the chance to just kind of, you know, hunker down for a while and not be swallowed up and mangled by the industry that so clearly is pushing them like a huge machine so that's good I hope that they're doing well mental health wise and all that kind of jazz Uh, they're obviously getting a ton of great critical notices and for me this is a 6 out of 10 it's an improvement on the first record not really going to go back to it some people love it more power to them anyway it's time to get into our top fives Craig let's do it as Craig noted earlier on this top five is all about feuds and rivalries and yeah I mean a lot of research here Craig for sure um did you find yourself surprised by the process, or are you? Was it was it tough to get it down to five? Was there any kind of that's definitely not going in for that reason?
1: Yeah, like as you said, I think some of them were. You know, we'd we'd been over them quite a bit on previous episodes. Uh, listener, go back and listen to all of those. But yeah, I guess. Some kind of much talked about feuds probably won't feature for me just because I've said everything that I can say. Um, so yeah, there was a couple of ones that, as I said, I was kind of intrigued about and just did a bit of digging into. I was like, oh, wow, this is pretty colourful. Um, i I'm, I'm kind of anticipating you'll go in a different direction, maybe slightly different genres to me. So I think we'll have a di- bit of diversity. There was there's an element of hip hop beefing in mind. So yeah, hopefully it makes for a fun 10.
2: Okay, well, we'll see. I guess we should state, first of all, though, we are a podcast of peace and love, and we all hope that oh, in all yeah. these situations, that if the situation hasn't been resolved, that it can be, and we promote nothing but harmony amongst musical creatives and the world They're over. With that in mind, at number five for me, uh, yeah, this one's been talked about for sure. Have you always been friends? What's we, up with you never, and Eddie?
0: We never had a fight, ever. I just have always hated their
2: band. <laughs> but it's not like your friends <laughs> or anything. No, well, I mean, I, I can consider him a person that I really like. I mean, we've had a few conversations on the phone. I, I really like him. I think he's a
0: nice, really nice person.
2: That doesn't sound like too much of a feud there. That's Kurt Cobain talking about Eddie <laughs> oh, Vedder and Pearl Jam, a band that he hates by his own admission, or hated rather. Um, yeah, so Nirvana and Pearl Jam, you know, like two of the biggest grunge poster boy bands the world has ever seen, you know? And I think ultimately there was a bit of an Oasis blur thing going on there. Um, yeah, that, that's fair. You know, in, in that regard, uh, preceding it by, by some time. Um, and I think they're they're in, in as much as like it's like a football team, right? It was like, well, who do you prefer? And like amongst your peer group or people handing you down music. I know for me, uh, I was heavily influenced by a big Pearl Jam fan, um, and so I I kind of went in the Pearl Jam way. But Nirvana were always there as well. And I think ultimately, like a lot of, the f- I can't speak for either fan base, but I got the vibe from a lot of people that like. Any kind of actual animosity between the two camps was somewhat manufactured and didn't really exist. And that's certainly the argument of uh, Charles Orr Cross, the guy who wrote the book Heavier Than Heaven, the biography on Kirk Cobain. Uh, He himself has come out. He was speaking to uh, KNKX in 2016, which I assume is a radio station. And he basically said that, like, most of the gossip surrounding the rivalry came almost entirely from a handful of interviews that Kirk Cobain did. That one that we heard there on MTV probably being one of them. Um he said that Cobain was, at the time, fielding a lot of questions about his drug addiction and wanted to talk about anything other than that. So an easy way to deflect attention off that was just slag off Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam, by comparison, didn't really fire any broadsides back at Nirvana. Like, it wasn't quite this kind of, like proper war yeah. and I guess the reason I picked this one is to kind of debunk it perhaps or talk about the idea of the feud as myth you know and the rivalry is like was it really a thing I mean like I know Eddie Vedder was definitely like from reading some Pearl Jam books when I was growing up like five against one um I think he was very hurt by people saying his band were shit <laughs> as you might imagine yeah
1: like you say you were a kind of Pearl Jam fan uh first and foremost I was Nirvana all the way but I always kind of felt sorry for Eddie in this one it was very one-sided um, it was friendly enough to the extent that Kurt was purely slagging off the music, and also a lot of the time he was on his, you know, oh, you're selling out, man, kind of trip, which I think he got totally caught up on to a, a very damaging extent for him personally. Um, but Eddie, yeah, like, uh, we've talked, I think we talked about it previously, where I felt then Eddie, nearly everything he was doing creatively thereafter. Um, was almost a reaction to the criticism of Kurt. That's maybe putting too much weight on Kurt, but it it seemed like he was willfully kind kind of going left field. Pearl Jam were enormous. I I feel like 10 sold way more records than even Nevermind, right? It It was gargantuan as an album. And quite quickly, Pearl Jam, you know, after Nirvana had sadly dissolved and went off their own kind of route, got increasingly experimental, probably got to a point where if Kurt was still around, he would have dug some of the later stuff. Um, and yeah, it seemed like a kind of a creative rivalry. They were both huge leading a movement, both from that kind of uh, Northwest coast. Um, and yeah, like it didn't have that horrible bitterness of like Kurt and Axel Rose. Axel Rose said totally scummy things about Kurt Cobain. And you had the whole kind of, I think it was the MTV Awards where Dave Grohl was going, hi Axel at the end and blah, 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 as kind of guns and roses were washed away by the grunge movement um that was just nasty kind of toxic with pearl jam and nirvana it felt like a thing of like yeah as you say Blur and oasis where it's the kids are picking sides which is good
2: yeah, I mean like Kurt Cobain probably didn't help things by, by by referring to Pearl Jam as careerists who were only in it for the money but as I say your man Charles Cross <laughs> Okay, did, maybe
1: i slightly personal <laughs> well, Charles Cross <laughs> did say not, that like But he was a nice guy on the phone
2: Well <laughs> yeah, I like, can you imagine what those conversations were like and he said he goes he goes he said that the, the two guys had a relationship calling in a friendship would be a bit of a stretch but he also maintains that like he looks back to the likes of like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and how the media have to create things and people kind of went along with that and that's where it became but I will I'll close off this one by saying that obviously like post career. Kirk Cobain's tragic death. Eddie Vedder was interviewed in Melody Maker uh, in 1994 and he was asked about his relationship really with Kurt Cobain and he said there was a lot of stuff that got said but none of that really matters. I'd like to think that he may have had second thoughts about some of the things that he did say I mean you know there's a person that we both knew who told me that Kurt asked about me a lot picked their brains about me, this person who knew both of us. I thought that was cool It made me feel good because so much bullshit was getting written about us and we talked, we talked a couple of times and one time he told me flat out delivered me a whole paragraph on the respect he had for what I did and he realised that it was pure Uh, This was at the MTV Awards Tears in Heaven was playing in the background, we were slow dancing. I remember going out surfing the next morning, remembering how good that moment felt and thinking, fuck, man, if only we hadn't been so afraid of each other, because we were going through so much of the same shit. If only we talked, maybe we could have helped each other. So, you know, it's an interesting kind of bittersweet thing. And I think that there is a lot in there. I, I do agree with you. I do think that Eddie Vedder took the criticism so strong because Eddie Vedder, I think, really wanted Pearl Grant to be perceived as cool. And counterculture yeah. and anti-establishment. And they wear those things to a degree, but they definitely attracted a lot of kind of, I guess, more conventional following, I suppose. And I think that that probably stuck in his craw because like, across the way there was Kurt Cobain, you know, like the fucking icon in a different way, a much more punk figure that he knew he could probably never be. And then, of course, for that to split down the middle and the way it went uh, has probably haunted him his whole life. But, you know, it's an interesting one, you know. It's like me yeah, and you, Craig, yeah, you know. Friends some days, <laughs> you know, who knows the next
1: which one's which so oh i'm eddie save eddie for eddie another eddie.
2: pod <laughs> <laughs> <A> what <laughs> yeah i'm, I'm a square Bode well you know? for me <laughs>
1: <laughs> you got better hair <laughs> <laughs> We you know that's not true all right my number five is um going back to the 80s this is two artists that were yeah in the same kind of boat career-wise uh as well um they did come face to face quite often as it turned out when i dug into this it didn't go so well though um the one thing it definitely didn't end well um for either sadly um but here's one kind of good thing that came out of it years later um one of the artists covering the other um and it's also a guilt-free way to listen to a classic now (laughs) Prince there, bragging about his penthouse in Manhattan. Um, covering, or not really covering, I guess, just letting leading his band in um, Michael Jackson's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. Obviously, Michael Jackson and Prince, two huge cultural forces, um, megastars of 80s pop and beyond, um, huge figures in African-American culture. Um, but they felt like quite alien to each other, right? And there was never much kind of said about the two of them crossing paths um the two of them kind of communicating felt like almost weirdly alien like some dc marvel crossover or something these universes kind of weirdly colliding and putting you know scandals controversies to one side when you know they had quite similar careers at a certain point um michael jackson obviously child star um famous from a young age and then enormous prince who started with a big hit then kind of went underground and started competing with michael i guess around purple rain time there was rumors of like a conflict and sniping for years then uh, a tape of michael jackson um around about 88 um surfaced a couple of years ago um for this i think it was interviews for um an autobiography or a ghostwritten autobiography of michael called moonwalker um And he was basically giving out about Prince and saying, I've proved myself since I was real little. It's not fair. He feels like I'm his opponent. I hope he changes because, boy, he's going to get hurt. I don't like to be compared to Prince. He's one of the rudest people I've ever met. And he's mean and nasty to my family. And when you look into it, there was a number of encounters that just kind of get more and more bizarre. So it started with um, a James Brown gig in 1983 where um, both Michael Jackson and Prince were in attendance. Michael Jackson, biggest star in the world. Prince just about to really strike big. Um, Michael Jackson was on stage with James Brown, right? And Michael Jackson whispers in Brown's ear, um, according to Quincy Jones, who, of course, is always a great source, uh, Michael was saying, call Prince up, I dare him to follow me. And James Brown was (laughs) like, what, who, who? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> after jackson's third attempt brown stepped to the mic and told the crowd that someone named prince would be joining them so prince is like okay prince got on stage and started doing like his hendrix impressions on guitar took his top off and started dancing and then tried to lean against a prop lamppost and like collapsed into the crowd um, james brown like rushed to like help him And Michael Jackson was overheard basically mocking Prince and being like, he's made a fool of himself. He's such a (laughs) joke. Jesus Christ. (laughs) According to Quincy, later that night, Prince tried to run over Michael Jackson in his limo. (laughs) I mean, that's how you (laughs) respond, right? I I
2: assume the limousine was purple as well. We'll never know who did this. Of
1: course, (laughs) of course. But Quincy um, was like, okay, this can't go on. This is not good for pop um, or the world at large. So we need to bring these two people together. Um, Initially, Prince turned down um, appearing on We Are The World, which was a great call by Prince. Um, But then Quincy was like, hey, listen, we'll get him involved in B.A.D. a few years later. right, And he can be in the music video. Do you remember the music video for B.A.D.? It was Michael Jackson. Yeah, as a kind of street tough, like a dancing street tough, facing off against Wesley Snipes. And um, here's Prince to talk a little bit more about what was supposed to happen initially.
0: You know, that Wesley Snipes character, th- that would have been me. <laughs> now you run that video in your mind. The first line of that song is Your Butt is mine. Your butt is mine. Now I said who's gonna sing that to whom? Cause you sure ain't singing it to me. And I sure ain't singing it to you. So right there we got, you know, right there we got a problem.
1: Yeah, um, the late Great Prince there explaining why he wasn't too hot on the idea. Um, Wesley Snipes had, um, basically it was, you know, it was said that they just kind of clashed heads and uh, Prince was like, no, I don't like the kind of direction this video is going. Wesley Snipes a couple of years ago said, actually what happened was it was supposed to be Prince, me and Prince auditioned together and I blew Prince out of the water I don't think that's true. Um, He would say that. Maybe Wesley's telling the truth. He would, Um, but apparently um, during this meeting, we
2: we need director (laughs) of the video, Martin Scorsese, to give us a real behind the scenes.
1: Well, there was a lot going on because, according to Quincy, uh, around about this time, Prince showed up at Michael Jackson's house wearing an overcoat and holding a big white box. On the box was the label Camille, which apparently is what Prince called Michael, like Michael Camille or something. And in the words of Quincy, the box had all kinds of stuff. Some cufflinks with Tootsie Rolls on them. Michael was scared to death. He thought there was some voodoo in there. I wanted to take it because I knew Michael was going to throw it away. And Prince was just basically trolling the fuck out of Michael Jackson. <laughs> then, <laughs> uh, Many years passed where nothing was said. In 2006 then, um, Michael Jackson was hanging out with Will I Am who uh, got Michael on the guest list to some Vegas thing that Prince was doing. Um, No one knew Michael Jackson was in the audience except for Prince because Prince apparently knew everything. Um, So they're sitting there watching Prince playing along. He's playing bass. Prince comes out into the audience with this giant bass He knew where Michael was sitting, and he walked right up to Michael and started playing bass directly in his face, like aggressive slap bass. (laughs) Then the next morning, Will went over to Michael Jackson's house for breakfast, and Michael was going, Will, why do you think Prince was playing bass in my face? Michael was outraged, said Will I Am uh, and then started going on, Prince has always been a meanie. He's just a big meanie. He's always been not nice to me. Everybody says Prince is this great legendary renaissance man, and I'm just a song and dance man. But I wrote Billie Jean and I wrote We Are the World. Okay, great example. And I'm a songwriter too. Um so yeah. That was kind of where the them left it, and you know, the stories diverged. Um but Prince, it was Prince as always, was very enigmatic about it. And a few years later, a press conference, um, he was asked who would win in a fight. And he said something like, oh, I think Michael's a lover, not a fighter. And like after everyone stopped laughing, he was kind of like, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't say too much about Michael. I think he knows things. I think he knows stuff that's going on in the world that the rest of us don't. And then just stopped talking. <laughs> like, oh, I'm hell. very eerie but yeah that's Jesus. my number five probably should have been number one going through all that yeah like like what else you got can you imagine Prince coming up
2: to you in the middle of a gig and aggressively <laughs> playing bass guitar in your face I mean on one hand it's a badge of honour on another hand I'm done I figure like my funeral is the next day like yeah. it's over well, okay, oh yeah that was, that's that, some that, dark that magic epic. um that was that, that that was intense and epic and uh, it's time to pivot now Craig, to a pop punk band tearing itself apart on your
0: excuses
2: Of course, it's Blink 182 versus itself. And that song there is Man Overboard. It's back when, in happier times, when Mark, Tom, and Travis were all getting along very well together. But you can totally take those lyrics and apply it to the fractious state that the band would eventually come to form. So um, they were around for a long time, very, very popular, very, very, you know, successful and beloved by a lot of people. It seemed like. Uh, yeah. Mark Hoppus and Tom Delong were just the ultimate best friends done good in the music world. But behind the scenes, uh, tempers were starting to fray. So in 2005, they took a hiatus from the band. And Tom DeLonge made a lot of noise about this, basically saying that like, His creative freedom was being stifled and, you know, he didn't know what direction the band were going to go in. And, you know, he wanted time off to kind of hang out with his family and stuff. And that's fair enough. But ultimately... And UFOs. And UFOs, yeah, of course. And then it became this war of words. I remember around this time, like, Travis and Mark started a band called Plus 44 and put out a record, which I still enjoy to this day. Which included one song in particular, which I think was on the very first top five we did. No, it isn't. Which is... um clearly a passive-aggressive shot at Tom DeLonge. Tom DeLonge started his Angels and Airwaves band, which were horrific. Um, And it looked like they were done. Like, it looked like it was over. But then, um, as the decade came to a close, they reformed and put out a couple of singles and then put out a record called Neighbourhoods in 2011. And so it seemed everything was fine again, but not really. Uh, As recently as 2015, they broke up again. Or rather, in this case, Tom DeLonge was booted out, he kind of maintains. Matt Skiba from Michael Trio came in and is now... You know, the permanent member of the band, they put out two records as that kind of three piece since and ultimately quality has not really been there. But it's it's all gotten very kind of muddy and all uh, uh, and very kind of, you know, snipey back and forth, really. And um, when th- that came along in 2015, uh Mark and Travis did a big, long interview at Rolling Stone, basically just stating that. Uh, Tom was horrible to work with. Um, Tom, meanwhile, put in an Instagram post saying that he didn't leave the band. He didn't really know what was going on with the press releases and ultimately felt frozen out by things. But both Travis Barker and Mark Hoppas have been very kind of adamant just stating that they were doing all the work for the reunion. Uh, Tom was moving the goalposts at all different times saying that we need a record label or else there's no point in doing this. And eventually, like as they were about to like go to the studio or something, I think Mark Hoppus was emailing Tom's management back and forth and it was kind of put to him that he was leaving. So he was looking for clarity on this, and eventually, like, he said he got an email back that said, from Tom DeLonge's manager, saying, Tom, full stop, is full stop, out full stop. And he said it was the oh, exact yeah. same message that he got back in, like, the mid-2000s when they broke up for the first time. Um, he, so they're asked at one stage by the Rolling Stone guy, if Tom says tomorrow that he wanted back in and the three members should start recording a new album, would he be welcome? Travis Barker says, Mark's the sweeter one, so will let him answer. And Mark Hoppus eventually says um you know like we all want to like just play music together and be happy which we haven't been able to do uh he says we've done everything that we could to give tom what he says that he needs it's been years of pushing back and i have to tell you it feels humiliating to be in a band where you have to be apologizing for one person all the time that's how it's felt for a long time i guess in terms of recent developments there hasn't really been that much obviously like they've kind of i guess as you as you allude to craig tom's gotten into the whole ufo game getting a bit of clout Mm. in that regard he may have been right we we still haven't really figured that out have we
1: well, the Pentagon confirmed that the footage he released was definitely UFOs, as in they didn't have an explanation for what. We're going off on a, a total tangent here, but yeah, it seems like he's been lent some legitimacy. I don't know; that whole world um, is is quite strange to me, as much as it can be entertaining. Um, and I say well, that as someone that was he's like definitely out though. Oh, he's definitely out. Yeah, I watched that um, that Joe Rogan interview with him because oh, I was Craig, just like, no. "What is what is his <laughs> life now?" And I must say, I can, just from, and it was probably, what it was a Joe Rogan podcast, it was probably two hours. He seemed extremely scattered. He seemed extremely intense. I can't imagine being on the road with a person like that. Just from that kind of two-hour conversation, he seemed like someone that might be difficult to work with at this point in time. I don't know if that has been a, a kind of progressive thing. I know Travis has previously talked about how Back in the early days when they'd be in the back of the van, Tom would just keep talking about conspiracy theories and they'd like laugh along and just let him do his thing. I don't know. He sounds like he could be maybe hard work. Um, I don't know. I don't really know whose side to take. I don't know enough about it. Um, well,
2: in terms of uh, in terms of closing the door, you know, back in January of this year, uh, the copyright held by Tom DeLong on Blink-182's back catalogue was purchased by a music investment company by the name of... Hypnosis songs? That's uh, the pentagon. A 100% of the uh, of the copyrights have previously acquired similar back catalogs from the likes of Jack Ansonoff and the Chainsmokers. Announcing the acquisition of 157 songs, the guy from that label or wherever the fuck they are, Merc uh, Mercutis said, If you're under 27 years old and making music, they are a seminal band. They had angst, they had energy, they had humour, but most importantly, they had incredible songs, and Tom is at the core of that. It's an honour to welcome into the hypnosis family. Tom DeLong said it's an honour to have been playing music for so many years and to be in a position to partner with this great team. This is now a perfect opportunity for me to not only celebrate my past, but also to give me the foundation to create more music for many decades to come, which is incredibly, lots of corporate speak there to suggest that maybe there could be some, like, annoying legal battles down the line for Ben lin over ownership rights and stuff. I don't know where it's going to go, yeah, but it doesn't seem it'll keep our new positive. section full,
1: which is the main thing. Um... <laughs> If you you know, excuse my blink ignorance, I like a you know, a good amount of stuff, but in terms of songwriting, if you look at the breadth of their work, who would you prefer? Who do you think is more accomplished, writer? Is there a clear winner? That might be an obvious I question for always, fans.
2: Always, always preferred Mark Hoppus. I always did. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um I, I just preferred everything he was doing more than Tom. But ultimately, I don't know. I mean, it could be much of emotions to some people. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I will say, though, that like the current Blink iteration doesn't really do it for me, doesn't really interest me, probably because I'm in my mid-30s.
1: Yeah, I always think it must be weird to still be singing a lot of those lyrics when you're, those guys are probably what, approach, approaching 50 now? It's weird kind of doing those, those particular songs you probably wrote when you're in your early 20s. Um, It's a Jimmy Eat World problem as well, though, isn't it? I
2: mean, like, I love Jimmy Eat World, but, like, the idea of, like, singing about high school and, like, sinking the basket and taking the girl to prom, you're like, I don't know if you can keep doing this forever, guys. Anyway, that was my number four, Sad Times. Some good songs, though.
1: Yeah, some more good songs from both of these acts were, like, in a kind of, in the Venn diagram um, universe of your number five. um, This is kind of the... If we're talking MJ and Prince, this is like maybe the king of 90s US alt rock and the crown prince of indie. This is pavement, first of all.
0: If I could settle down, then I would settle down. Out on tour with us, smashing pumpkins, nature kids. I, they don't have no function, I don't understand what they mean. I could really give a fuck. The Stone temple pilots they're elegant Bachelor.
1: Yeah, I was paving there with um the wonderful range life. Um taking a few shots, maybe, at smashing pumpkins. Um maybe I was being a bit unfair to Billy Corgan by comparing him to Michael Jackson there. Um but I don't know. Just a tad, yeah. Just a tad. Um, This is at the root of this feud between smashing pumpkins and pavements. The song "Range Life" from "Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain" um, off um, Pavements' 1994 album. Um, so essentially, it should be noted that this is Stephen Malkmus in character. The song apparently is him um, playing a kind of aging 60s hippie that doesn't get like the kind of new bands and how kind of corporate music is getting. Um, Smashing Pumpkins are name-checked. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots are name-checked. They didn't seem to have any real problems with it. Uh, Billy Corgan, of course, was enraged at this slight. Um, and the rumours at the time were that uh, Corgan had Pavement kicked out of Lollapalooza altogether. Uh, there's footage, I think, or there used to be footage online of Pavement playing a Lollapalooza show and it seemed like maybe it was only a matter of time before they got kicked off because the audience was not very receptive to them. They were essentially hurling rocks at the band as they tried to play. Um, I think, uh, just, you know, they're kind of gamely trying to get through their catchy, slacker indie rock. And like a fucking a huge rock hits Malcolmus in the chest and he's just like, okay, just walks off stage. So maybe it wasn't all Corgan. Um, he responded to the accusation in Rolling Stone, of course, in 1995. Um and said that, listen, it's just a rumour and nothing to do with me. And he was asked, "Well, why do you think um, Pavement might have taken shots at you? And Corgan says, how about let's start with jealousy? There's always been flack we've gotten from (laughs) certain bands, the mud honeys and pavements of this world, that somehow we cheated our way to the top, that we deceived the public to get where we're at. We have our own level of integrity that we've kept to, and we're not going away. Uh, So yeah, he thinks it's rooted in jealousy. Um, sorry can basic. i just say can i just say yeah. that
2: like if, if 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 ever the question is put to you like where do you think that this this rift occurred like even if you're talking amongst your own family members a friend an ex-lover i don't know the, if you turn around and you go how about we start with jealousy i mean like that is fucking <laughs> amazing it's fucking incredible it's very Gorgon. so billy corgan i love it no wonder he went into pro wrestling like it's glorious oh yeah, yeah kick it
1: off he continues like he goes on and on he says uh i had no problem with pavement um When I met the guys from Nick Cave's band, they said they were told that I tried to kick them off the bill. Uh, I'm totally a Nick Cave fan. That astounded me. Maybe Pavement didn't start the rumour. Maybe it was some industry insider. Blame it on Billy. And he said, it's, it's like high school all over again. You have the football team, except the football team is the guys in pavement. And they're all patting themselves on the back for how cool they are instead of healthily challenging themselves to greater heights. <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> and of course, I mean, I just love the juxtaposition of both bands because it's so on point. Because of course, Smashing Pumpkins, enormous... Getting lots of flack from all kind of corners. Um, you know, if Pearl Jam were seen as careerist, my God, Billy Corgan was vilified for wanting to be... He was essentially like the the American Noel Gallagher, right? Where it's like, I want to be the biggest band in the world. I want to change everyone's life. And, you know, uh, success isn't a dirty word kind of thing. And then Pavements are kind of like the most accomplished slackers of all time. They never seemed to look like they cared that much. They kind of sabotaged their own songs and in the process made them better. Malcolmus thereafter didn't really say too much about it. He said kind of stuff, like snide stuff, like um, he didn't really get the whole careerist rock and roll lifestyle they had. Um, They put the boot in a bit in, you know that book, Your Favourite Band Is Killing Me? It was pretty big. I haven't read about it, but there's a whole essay that talks about range life and pavement kind of weighed in. Um, it quietened down until 2010, um, where Billy kind of ignited things again. I think this was a tweet. Just found out that um, SP is playing with pavement in Brazil. It's going to be one of those New Orleans-type funerals. (laughs) Again, the wrestling thing is way on point. (laughs) I say that because they represent the death of the alternative dream, and we follow with the affirmation of life part. He says, funny how those who pointed the big finger of sellout are the biggest offenders now. Yawn, they have no love. By the way, we'll be the band up there playing new songs because we have the love. Um, it took Malcolm's eight years to respond, um, and he compared uh, Smashing Pumpkins to Fleetwood Mac kicking out Lindsay Buckingham about the whole Darcy situation when they got back together without her. And he said, the numbers will be out there. Soon as there's a hint that um, they're not selling well, you'll hear about it. Um, there's a female bass player named Darcy, and she's not going to be on that tour. People are doing or have similar complaints at Fleetwood Mac stuff because the band has already done like three fake reunions, almost reunions. And this is supposed to be, I think they're just playing like their old hits. They're not going to bore us with the new album or whatever. (laughs) See, Markless, okay. who never really has a bad word to say about anyone, um, kind of hates Billy <laughs> Corgan. Yeah, I mean, he's
2: got a point in a way. I've often talked about that 2008 Pumpkins gig. Pumpkins and quote, oh my god, marks, yeah, the horror thing, you had. the worst show I've ever been to. But again, I was ha- only having this conversation the other day, man. It's like for me, it always comes back to the fact that like Billy Corgan wrote Tonight Tonight and other amazing songs. They are one of the great greatest hits bands ever. He kind of gets a lifetime pass. You could definitely fill an entire book with Billy Corgan skirmishes over the years. Both caused by him and you know wrought upon him uh, again <laughs> uh, like as with so many characters in the world of music that we always talk about I'm glad he's out there doing things you know I think the world's a better yeah. place with a minute
1: <laughs> definitely definitely, I agree
0: alright number three for me I watched people around the world say what a great guitar player Kirk is and what a piece of shit I am and that I uh, got kicked out of Metallica and that I wasn't good enough for them and that I was a loser and and I've had to deal with that for almost twenty years. And it's it's a dreadful experience. It's been hard, Lars. It's been hard to watch everything that you guys do and you touch turn to gold and everything that I do fucking backfire. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that they would consider my backfire complete success. You know, and, and am I happy being number two? No. You know, you're just now encountering something I've been going through 13, 14 years. I've never had a chance to be able to tell you without talking to Lars, the guy in Metallica. Never talked to my little Danish friend again. (laughs)
2: That's Dave Mustaine there giving Lars Ulrich an earful uh, on some kind of monster documentary about Metallica, which we covered extensively on the second ever episode of No Popcorn. Go back in your feed and look for that if you haven't heard it yet. And if you haven't seen the documentary yet again, I find myself recommending it. So I'll try and keep this one a little bit brief because I've talked about Metallica to death at this stage. But for anyone who doesn't know, Dave Mustaine, who would later go on to form Megadeth and backfire to the tune of selling 38 million albums across the world. He was originally in Metallica back in the day, before they broke, and he was booted out of the band for drug and alcoholism issues. Uh, He apparently, according to reports, was quite violent, you know, it got out of hand, and he maintains he was given no warning. The band say that they did give him fair warning, and it became this kind of acrimonious war words for quite some time. As a matter of fact, they put him on a bus, apparently, back to L.A., and on the bus, he wrote down the lyrics to what would become a Megadeth song. So it's all, you know, they created it. Metallica, like, if, <laughs> if you, who's to blame for Megadeth existing? It's Metallica. So <laughs> thanks, lads. But essentially, like, Mustaine uh, cuts a real sad guy figure in the film. The film kind of does him dirty a little bit. There's actually a deleted scene, which he goes into more detail. And, like, there's an element you can understand the sympathy because he talks about um the idea of, like, how... Lars Ulrich and James Heffield were like his only real friends. He said, all I had was you and James and my mom. And basically he was a young guy. He knew he was out of control, but he just needed someone to kind of basically like put their arm around his shoulder and help him out a bit. But the lads were like, nope, you're too volatile. You're you're done. You can see both sides of the argument, I suppose. Um, again, he talks about the idea of like his success perhaps being or his backfire is being viewed as success and again I think I would mate Megadeth are one of the most best-selling bands out there in the yeah. metal genre or even outside of it they've sustained a career over like what like fucking four decades now at this stage uh, it's 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 going okay for you but that scene as well yeah uh, like they're in this hotel room with Lars and of course Metallica's 40 grand a month therapist sitting in the background having you know heart to heart and essentially like James Heffield isn't there so Mustaine's like This I've been waiting for this day. But it's only half done, and it's like, oh god, this is never gonna end. He talks about it as well. He goes, you know, I walk down the street like, and like these people throw up their devil horns, and they go Metallica, and he goes, <laughs> and they do that to taunt me, and it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I mean, what's going on? I appreciate you missed out on being in like the biggest metal band ever, but you know, you did pretty well for yourself, man. It yeah, should be okay. I-, I think, I think it's all rosy in the garden these days. I think it's okay. But then maybe I missed something six months ago where someone said something somewhere, and it all kicked off again because it, it's one of those ones, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at that, you know, when you reach that level, it becomes like the narcissism of small differences. And I can kind of understand his human nature that even though he's massively successful, his mates, the band he was in, are just that bit way more successful. Um, (laughs) Obviously, a massively talented dude, another one that seems like he'd be kind of tough to work with um but yeah like putting him in metallica i don't know maybe it throws the whole chemistry off but i i'd probably have his playing over kirk's a good choice i thought it might be your number one okay i think um um,
2: i think yeah if i recall correctly craig sorry i I think the narcissism of small differences is megadeth's fourth album if i recall correctly (laughs) also while while we're on the subject though i will say uh here's lars and james talking about the situation in a much more kind of we've sorted it out you know thing a few years later there was never really that much animosity between me and him. Um, we, I think we forgave each other rather
0: quickly. I've seen him a lot and, and we've run into each other a lot. In the last couple of years, me and him have actually gotten a kind of a cool phone thing. He calls me once in a while
2: and just tells me how he's doing. I have a really a kind of a, a pure thing going and stuff like that. We definitely experienced a lot of cool stuff together that can never be changed and never be... Done again with the same innocence and virgin territory you know, that we had covered. Virgin, last <laughs> 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 virgin used loosely. Ah,
1: <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Well done, lads. Ruining it there. Adorable. The <laughs> yeah, totally ruining it. <laughs> um, all right, my number three actually has a happy ending as well, which is good, I guess. Uh, I'm turning my attention hip hopwards. There's a few kind of biggies missing. um Literally, I, I didn't pick Biggie and Tupac because it just ended so dark and it was very upsetting, and it's been covered quite a lot. Fifty Cent was in loads of them, obviously. My favourite's Jar Rule, simply for the detail of um him apparently fifty apparently buying like two hundred front row tickets to a Ja Rule show, so no one'd be in it. It's great. <laughs> but um their music <laughs> kinda of bores me. So uh let's go with two absolute greats instead. This is the first takedown. four
2: albums in ten years, nigga. I could divide this one that be let's say two. Two of them shit was do. One was nah, the yeah, other was a That's a one hot album every ten year. Every not so switch up your flow your shit is garbage to shine technology the's gonna learn to respect the king don't be the next Get tested
1: on that summer jam screen because you know who did yeah, you know what well you know who yeah just keep that between me and you that was jay-Z in his pump with the takeover incredible Kanye Beach there um which is yes a doors sample that I actually like. (laughs) Absolute (laughs) magic from Kanye there, somehow doing it. But he is dissing, um, earlier in the song, Prodigy of Mob Deep, uh, but more importantly, Naz, of course, um, another kind of New York rival of his. He dedicates 32 bars to Naz and it's kind of, a lot of it is the best kind of diss. It's a very no-encore kind of diss where he just examines his back catalogue and rates his releases. It's like, yeah, Illmatic, yeah, that's a classic. But like in 10 years, the rest is pretty ropey, dude. Uh, he goes on to say like he used one of Naz's samples because you did it wrong. <laughs> so like I have to fix it. <laughs> You're using it wrong, which I love. Um, and this all stemmed from I think it was Jay-Z's, yeah, it was his debut, Reasonable Doubt. Nas was set to um, appear uh, at a kind of guest verse around about 1996. He just didn't show up to the studio, which really irked Jay. Um, Things kicked off from there. There was jabs kind of in different songs between both. Um, Nas kind of waded in on um, it was written. Were kind of subtle... Um, like subs, like just subliminal kind of messages to Jay. Uh, but the takeover and the blueprint was like when Jay really came out swinging, and he intended to basically bury Naz, end his career. Um, and lots of people were like, "Yeah, this is like this is it for Nas." Nas has been on a pretty like dodgy run at this point. Um, so it could have finished him, but Nas actually. <laughs> <laughs> said no you know what I'm going to do I'm going to do one of the best disses of all time he responded with ether which totally reignited his, his career and sounds a bit like this
2: and his manuscript just sounds stupid when KRS already made an album called Blueprint first Biggie's your man then you got the nerve to say that you better than Big dick sucking lips won't you let the late big better live Well Nah, across the belly Lodge. I prove you lost already uh. the
0: king is back with my Dale. crown at.
1: Last Naz with with, some very horribly dated homophobia and ironically calling Jay a misogynist as well in the same breath but uh, some of the wordplay is extremely clever and of course it gave hip-hop the term eater which is now just a verb of its own so like basically any diss that is really fucking effective you've eatered the other person so legendary song totally brought him back into the game and there is audio online. It was a bit too kind of, um, bit too fuzzy and unlistenable to stick in here. But basically, it's Jay Z, I think the next day or two on like Hot 97. And he sounds like he's about to cry when he's talking about uh, this song coming out and like how it went way too far. Apparently, he first heard it when he walked into a club and the DJ put it on when he saw him, which is like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, good C DJ. Fucking hell, like, um, So, yeah, I think they they were playing it constantly on New York radio. Um, People were voting. Um, Nas, by all accounts, won there and then. There was kind of disses following. Um, So Jay-Z responded with a freestyle called Super Ugly, um, which wasn't as good, and also included a reference to Naz's girlfriend. And he said he basically had a a three-year kind of affair with her. And this, people were like, okay, this is way too far. It's kind of slightly more innocent days. His own mother, Gloria Carter, called into Hot 97 saying that Jay-Z should apologise to Naz and his family. Oh my God. <laughs> so Jay-Z called into the radio station and <laughs> listened to his mother and apologised to his mother and any female listeners that he offended with his lyrics. How did that he have was, a career <laughs> after this? <laughs> oh he just got bigger. It was it was kind of like a Drake situation where like he was so huge at that stage that like the kind of rap contingent couldn't do him in. But yeah, that was more or less how it ended. Um, there was a few other ones. But it seemed like the beef was buried a few years later. They both appeared on stage together. Um jay-z had like a tour which was called going to war or something like that and instead he just brought out naz and they kind of collaborated they've been on each other's songs ever since when he dropped when jay-z dropped that album with beyonce um a couple of years ago he did it on the same day as naz's kanye album and people were like oh is he is he trying to reignite something i think that was just a clash they kind of go to each other's birthday parties at this stage it's all good but um yeah pretty legendary pretty good
2: yeah, and fair play to Jay Z's man, you know, getting it done.
1: Incredible stuff, yeah. <laughs> Imagine.
2: All right. <laughs> Number two for me. Um you you might be surprised that I haven't had any new metal on the list so far. I so was trying to change that. Yeah. Mushroom Head and the phenomenal Solitaire Unraveling, one of the great songs to come out of the entire new metal genre, and a band I love quite a lot Cleveland, Ohio's own. And this section. This selection is all about Mushroomhead versus the other masked men in the world of metal, <laughs> Slipknot. <laughs> the, the Mushroomhead and Slipknot feud is actually comparable, I guess, to the Pearl Jammer Van one in that it's very much fan base driven, although in this situation there have been broadsides fired across from both camps. Um, Picture the scene, Craig. It's September 11th, 1999. Slipknot are on top of the world, according to this Metal Hammer article from earlier this year that I will be cribbing from. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, essentially, what happened was Slipknot were on this tour called the Livin' La Vida Loco tour there you go thank you Ricky Martin alongside a uh, an amazing bill that included Machine Head Amen and Coal Chamber they rolled into town in Cleveland, Ohio can you guess what happened
1: next? Um, animosity
2: you are correct. Mushroomhead <laughs> fans were not impressed and they pelted the band with missiles including hitting Paul Gray the now late bassist from Slipknot in the face with, according to Corey Taylor, a fucking padlock the size of my fist. Jesus. Corey goes on to say that when we got done playing we took all of our shit off and went into the audience. There was a lot of them but there was all nine of us. There was Machine Head and all our friends and amen. Let's just say we fucking handled it right there. So oh. essentially they got into a crowd brawl uh, in Ohio because Mushroomhead fans were like, this is Mushroomhead Country, mate, you're not allowed in here. Um, it turns out that Mushroom had actually played a little bit of a part in the uh precursor to this because uh, now ex front front man, I think, uh, Jeffrey Hatrix was on a podcast a few years ago and he said that he helped out in terms of like helping fans make signs and stuff and was like, you know, like rallying people up but then was like oh i wasn't actually there though you know i wasn't involved in the actual ruckus you know i was like hanging out somewhere else <laughs> and it's like yeah. okay <laughs> so this is like this is the whole thing the whole thing is that like mushroomhead fans and mushroomhead to an extent have alleged that slipknot have ripped them off and um, which doesn't appear to be fully traceable there is similarities of course you know they both have a certain image um they both have a certain style but mushroomheads is much more kind of faith no more inspired and a lot more kind of uh, i guess prog rocky um whereas slipknot obviously you know went for the more kind of you know Short burst new metally thing, um, but it has been like there have been some 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 direct accusations. Aforementioned Jeffrey Hatrix said they are Roadrunner invented clones of us and everybody knows it. He said that in two thousand and seven. Uh, also in two thousand and seven, I think it was their drummer possibly. It was another member of the band uh, James Felton, I believe, um, who basically said that they completely stole from mushroom and you know absolutely should be kind of held accountable for it um slipknot for their part have haven't kind of fired back that too much but your man yeah sorry felton said we kept our match up for eight years uh, Slipknot traded a platinum record for dignity, honor, and respect. Very fucking Ridley Scott's gladiator there. Uh, if you want to talk shit, you know where to find us. Um, Corey Taylor says, you cannot kill what you did not create. Maybe so, but I guess you can sure as fuck sell what you stole. Um, Corey Taylor has like very much kind of gone back and forth as well. And for a long time, didn't really address it. Didn't really give it a lot of oxygen. But then eventually tried to play peacemaker. Um, I think this was like a couple of years before that, that most recent quote. He said, I'm tired of it. We tried everything that we could to squash the beef between ourselves and much Mushroomhead. I've even come out and said I wish them nothing but luck. I don't care. It's not that big of a deal to me. Some degree of peace and harmony was achieved uh, around about 2010, following the tragic death of Paul Gray. When members of Mushroomhead both publicly and privately expressed their condolences and respect. But it is one of those ones that kind of whips around every often. Corey Taylor has talked about the idea of perhaps bringing them out on tour and like having some kind of all you know, kind of monsters of rock style, Bill, with the likes of Mudvayne and Guar, Although I feel like that's never going to happen. Plus, Mushroomhead are one of those acts that, like, in terms of a mainstream appeal or a mainstream success, they did peak around about, you know, 2001, 2003. They were on a major label. Since then, they've kind of found it hard to even kind of fund their records, I think, just judging off some of the kind of sound quality here and there. They've had a fucking litany of members come and go. They released an album this year. Uh, it wasn't very good. I'm, again, I'm, I've always been a fan. I love both bands. I, I wish Head were bigger and were able to tour and stayed together and, you know, developed as I thought that they might. Slipknot are the better band, but ultimately, you know, we can still have both. And I guess now, finally, Craig, yeah. for a bit of balance, right? Here's Corey Taylor giving it about Coldplay in 2008. Oh. Now, I
1: hate that album.
2: Is it just the album, or have you had a, have you had a run with them over time? No, I've never met them. Just a musical <laughs> difference of opinion. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Brian Eno, you're f- producing it. Dude, I just I him.
0: just I, I like heard it, it and <laughs> I was like, I was like, my jaw seriously it was in my lap. And you, I went, were you a fan before that? I like them. Like mm-hmm. I was like, you know, I mean, because stuff like that takes me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Anything that's overhyped, mm-hmm. I immediately draw back from. Mm-hmm. them. I'm like, wait a minute, you know. And then I get into it in my own time. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I got into that and I've listened to it. And obviously, you couldn't, you couldn't walk down the street without hearing that Clocks song yeah. like, every ten seconds. <laughs> yeah. You get big but then in this, the sites, right? this, yeah. I mean, they were massive over there. And then this new album came out, and everybody's like, Oh, it's gonna. F- like I listened to it and I was just like wow this is music to wipe your
1: ass to all right so check that out wow. oh well the what most shocking do? part of that for me was that he's like I was kind of a fan like up until then I was like what <laughs> up until that was the moment Viva he jumped off when yeah when they got Brian know, on board <laughs> 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 that's
2: crazy he's a complicated man you know uh, we, we, he we is we gave Coldplay we, we, we gave Coldplay a right good praising last week so yeah you know, they balance. need bring
1: him back down a peg the interesting one about that, your pick there, is like when the fans kind of get involved and it kind of gets out of control, it's like New Metal Ultras or something. I guess they're all grown up now you, and they've I got proper jobs. Masks, and yeah. yeah, yeah, it's probably all fine I don't now. know, man,
2: it's for life. It's for life, you know.
1: <laughs> it's like a gang. All right, my second pick. Um, two subjects of an infamous documentary. I think most people would be... If they're fans, they're fans of both bands in this instance. A source of great comedy, that documentary, but a little reminder here that the bands are actually the source of some great music. Andy Warhol's there with The Last tie, completely unrelated to the feud. Um, their nemesis being the Brian Jonestown Massacre, uh, who I actually like quite a bit more. Um, see them every time they're in town and there's actually gigs. I guess more specifically, their nemesis is Anton Newcomb, uh, de facto kind of leader of uh, the Jonestown So Dig is um, the documentary, um, which has become kind of a cliched watch, I guess, in terms of rock documentaries. It's basically like the real updated Spinal Tap. And it charts both bands, kind of initial mutual love-in. They had a lot of respect for each other. They were part of this, like, uh, Portland, San Francisco, 60s revivalist scene. And then things are kind of portrayed going extremely south. Um, It works because Anton is like this... Total character, I guess, can be quite volatile. He had his, his substance problems, which I think he's over about a decade now, thankfully. But he's kind of got like a, a wonderful cadence, great for sound bites. Um, and yeah, like it made Danny Warhol's obviously had a bit of success prior to the documentary coming out in 2004, but it certainly elevated the Jonestown and worked for them. Um, both bands kind of lashed out at the director for picking and choosing the clips uh, she was going to use. She followed them both for eight years. And even the dandies are like, okay, you're a bit unfair to Anton. Um, but as this clip will suggest, um, <laughs> which is Anton seeming a little unhinged. I don't know if like even out of context, like I don't know if you add in context this seems much better. This is Peter Holmstrom from Dandy Warhols talking about a gift he got from Anton. Well,
0: this is a special little present from our dear friend Anton. We were in San Francisco and um, we were playing a show at the Purple Onion and he just drove by in a truck and I just happened to be outside and he said, here, here's a present for you. I'll see you in a month. I'm going to India. We found these little things in here. With the individual names on them. Well, they're shotgun shells.
1: It's his like little idea. We can get this whole like Big Blur thing Oasis thing going, up. you know? I mean, yeah, maybe if both our bands were selling like 5 million records. million
0: records. He's like, you don't even understand, Zia. You don't even realize how much money I've gotten for us. I was like, Give Why? me my cut. I would never want to hurt you, Zia. If I wanted to kill you guys, I would have already did it. Great.
1: Great, <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, so that was the point where... Uh, He tried to manufacture this kind of feud, but also his, you know, he was on quite a lot of heroin, um, was picking fights with his own band. He'd, like, have an industry showcase and just start physical fights with the band. So if you were a Dandy Warhol, you'd probably be a little worried. I think there was some restraining orders. Um, Courtney Taylor, Taylor, lead singer of Dandy Warhol's, was talking there and was the narrator in the whole thing. And he's kind of pitched as, like... Anton's main sparring partner, but actually, he's got a huge amount of respect for him as a songwriter. He never really hits back. It all seems to stem from them like using the Jonestown's um, house at one point for a photo shoot because they're a bit more like authentic and living as a real band. And the Dandies are like that kind of careerist thing to a certain extent. There's a few actual like rock and roll diss tracks where like uh, Not If You Were the Last Junkie on Earth is the Dandy Warhol's breakthrough single um, and supposedly about the, the substance problems in the Jonestown Massacre they retaliate with it, Not If You Were The Last Dandy on Earth and I mean it totally worked for them in the end the documentary brought them to everyone's attention it's kind of Blur Oasis to blame as you hear there from Courtney um, and yeah I mean it introduced me to the Brian Jonestown Massacre and I think they're a sincerely underrated band they're fantastic they've got some great stuff but Anton Yeah, he's a character. I don't know where you stand on it, Dave.
2: I tend to live vicariously through you, Craig. Uh, (laughs) I'm not really (laughs) all 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 versed in it. Yeah, well, true. Yeah, for sure. Most life things. But I mean, like, especially those midnight runs by the canal. I'm right there with you. But um, (laughs) yeah, no, I've never really understood the, the, the appeal or the fascination. I know you're a big fan. I know that you very much enjoy their legendary... Uh, overlong, ramshackle, charming gigs. You went to yes. one not so long ago, back when, you know, the world had pop concerts and that kind of stuff. But I know. Um, yeah, they remain kind of a, like, uh, I don't know, maybe I need to do a proper deep dive, but today is not that day, I'm afraid. Anyway, listen, for my number one, right, I'm going to dive in here. I'm going to start off with a quote, okay? I'm not going to tell cool. you who said it. This person is the front man of a band, and this is his quote. To the Irish Times in 2001, we make music for people who work, I don't want to make music for art galleries or avant-garde people I just want to make music that appeals to real people and if that comes across as meat and potatoes to the enemy to be honest (laughs) that doesn't really bother me that's right Craig it's musicians versus the fourth estate you've
0: just enough in my own view education to perform I'd like to shoot you all and then you go
2: that's right it's it's stereophonics and mr writer yes kelly jones
1: (laughs) revealing (laughs) himself to be like a proto swifty there in terms of sentiments sorry to cut across you but i'm like wow that could be yeah that could be a tweet yeah This is, in
2: fact, do it, Craig. It's all yours. You came up with it on the spot. I can't take that away from you. Uh, here's <laughs> no, I the meant the lyrics is... rather than my th- Yeah, come on. <laughs> is this, this, of course. Uh, one example of many of musicians versus journalists. That's right. I did, in <laughs> fact, tweak the concept just a little nice. bit, Craig, to suit my own interests. And here it is. Uh, Mr. Writer came out. It's on the record, Just Enough Education to Perform. Uh, what footballer, what famous footballer has that tattooed on his arm, by the way, that phrase?
1: Uh, The White Pele, Wayne Rooney. Remember the name. Correct. Correct. Um, He's a huge fan of the band. Um, Imagine being a huge,
2: no offence to any listeners, uh, particularly those who support our Patreon, thank you. But imagine being like, my favourite band are the Stereophonics. Like, really? I I just, really? You know, a man (laughs) who's permanently shuttered into a leather jacket and jeans and just like going on about whatever. Now, okay, hang on. Here's the twist, Craig. I kind of like the song. <laughs> like, I mean, always... like, the melody
1: is good, <laughs> but the fucking lyrics just... I can't listen to it. Ruins it. Uh, let's get into the
2: lyrics, shall we? Um, he's given... So, basically, this is Kelly Jones giving out about journalists. And for a long time, he himself, he was asked by The Guardian in, in 2008, did he have any big career regrets? And his response was... um writing that song he said every journalist thought it was about them it took me 10 minutes to write and 10 years to explain it's just a song about a couple of people that have been around me really it's supposed to be a bit of a sarcastic song but judging from some of the reviews it seems that some people didn't really get it now people have tried to track down specifically who or what it was about um it's kind of still unclear radio x of all people did an investigation into this a couple of months (laughs) ago fair play (laughs) so it's the mystery endures journalism still getting done People think it's an enemy writer. They think that it's someone who went on tour with them and then slagged them off after the fact. Kelly Jones did not like it. But enemy did review this song and said, if we really told it like it is and tried to approximate the sheer dreariness of this song, health and safety would dictate this review carried a warning about operating heavy machinery. Which oh. is ouch. <laughs> so, yeah, the lyrics, of course, you know, he's, um, are you so lonely you don't even know me but you'd like to stone me why don't you tell it like it is why don't you tell it like it really is before you go on home he's got the verse where he goes I used to treat you right give you my time but when i turn my back on you then you do what you do you've just enough in my own view education to perform I'd like to shoot you all I mean Kelly there's no need for that mate you know come on there's no need for that that's the (laughs) cancellation in
1: 2020 I'm sorry I'm sorry Kelly it's like
2: it's like like when Halsey tweeted about Pitchfork's basement caving in on them and killing everyone they had to be like Look, listen, I didn't actually mean that. But there's many examples in this kind of illustrious genre, Craig. Um, Public Enemy have got a bit of a weird one called A Letter to the New York Post, (laughs) which is, in fact, an open letter in song form to the New York Post. Because New York Post's biggest crime at the time was they wrote about Flavor Flav's domestic violence conviction, which was something that fucking happened. And in the fucking opening verse from Flavor Flav, not only does he flat out admit to it, he throws in a homophobic slur for good measure. So oh. I don't think it's quite as quite as, like an as you enemy. Guys.
1: You're supposed to be right I know. on. <laughs> I, you know, the New York Post is I like know. a rag, but that is like the one instance where they're in the right.
2: <laughs> You've also got the likes of Paparazzi by Lady Gaga, Peace of Me by Britney Spears, The Daily Mail by Radiohead, Journalists Who Lie by who else? Morrissey, Billy Bragg's Never Buy the Sun, mm. Sparks, Now That I Own the BBC, and many, 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 many more. I think ultimately, listen you're allowed to have write a reply. That's the whole thing, isn't it? But I just find that a lot of the time, um, musicians who get their, you know, who get hurt by the slings and arrows of music criticism can often in response, make the situation a little bit worse, you know, which is interesting because like songwriters by craft and by trade should theoretically be pretty good at this kind of thing. But in the case of Mr. Writer, a song that I enjoy it is ridiculous and so naive to the point of ah, oh, listen, mate, <laughs> like you shouldn't have done this. But it's on the album. It's on an album that also contains stuff like um handbags and glad rags and step on my old size nines, like like some of the worst songs ever recorded. So this one yeah. is on on a better level, I would say. But yeah, you know, come on, man. I had to wrap it up with uh crowbarring myself in there. I don't think I like that song I like that approach and I've done, but you know, who knows? Maybe someday. Maybe this is that what you're fun.
1: aiming for? Is that a life goal?
2: It would depend on what was said, really, you know, never cross a personal line, guys. That's what I say.
1: I feel like the the kind of maybe there's been a power shift and obviously journalists aren't the gatekeepers they once were. So, you know, you can't, you can still, I guess, misquote people, but it doesn't, you know, it's not a situation where a magazine interview every like album cycle is the only kind of representation you have. Like as an artist, you can just tweet and they probably just kind of tweet rather than put it into a song. Um, two men who put their feelings very much into song my number one it could only be one it played out in real time for us and it was magical. How dare you put Yay in my verses? I'm selfish, I want all of the curses. I'm pre-booking the churches, me versus, three
0: hearses.
2: If we all go to hell, it'll be worth it. Already in line with the greats, and on that same note, the only ones I chase are two ghosts, still giving you classics. That's the only thing that dates me. Over your 40, hunched over like he 80 tick tick
1: tick how much time he got that man is six 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 i got the devil flow nigga six 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 surgical summer with it Slip, snip snip yeah push a tease oh, takedown well, of drake man. the story of adidon which he reveals that, that drake had indeed been hiding a child as well um oh man so well constructed <laughs> set drake up um this was um everyone knows at this point <laughs> The response, so <laughs> the response to Drake's duppy freestyle, which itself had been a 24-hour response to Pusha's infrared, which turned out to be a total kind of bait situation. It was the laser beam on Drake's head, kind of taking jabs <laughs> at Drake, uh, you know, having ghostwriters, kind of saying, come and get me. Drake went all in with, well, he thought he went all in with duppy freestyle, um, that included stuff about how like Pusha T wasn't really that much of a drug dealer and that I used to be a fan, um, of Pusha T, but he's a bit over the hill and then taking shots at Kanye and then Pusha, um, <laughs> first of all, the, the artwork, which had Drake and blackface that caused a huge amount of thing that was a diss in itself. Of course, the whole kind of child fiasco, um, and what we just heard there, which is like him really taking it too far, and um taking shots of 40, um, poor innocent 40, um, who had a medical condition, and that was for a lot of people over the line. I mean, it was kind of hip-hop dissing, a lot of as we heard with the previous um Nas and Jay-Z stuff, unless your mother gets involved, it's all fair game. But I actually think even in that, those bars, um, it would later transpire that there was a kind of subliminal message there about 40. <laughs> Because after Drake refused to respond, um, saying that like his OG had told him that there'd only be bloodshed or something, and I've actually got loads of dirt, but I'm not going to go there. Um, he responded um, on a LeBron James TV show called The Shop, where they were like in a barbers getting their hair cut and just chatting. And Drake was nearly in tears and saying, I feel like I let you down, LeBron, by not responding to Pusha T. And him going on about how, you know, below the belt the 40 stuff was. Um, Pusha then appeared on Joe Budden's podcast and revealed that the information he got about Drake's child came from, yes, Drake's best friend, 40. Wow. (laughs) Not so much 40 as a woman he'd apparently been sleeping with that revealed all. Um, So when you listen to those bars again, it's that thing of like, okay, 40 is sick, 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 as in he is talking bad about Drake. He's got his issues. How much time has he got before the big reveal? It's totally Machiavellian. Pusha T is 10 steps ahead the whole time. It was brilliant, wasn't it, Dave?
2: Oh, my God, man. It, it was absolutely wonderful. It was just incredible. It was next level. I'd never heard anything like it. It was just, as you say, it's 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 the bait and switch, you know. It's the rope-a-dope. It's yeah. the fact that, like, to use, what, the closing track on Daytona, which is a fantastic record, right? I mean, like, yeah. as actual, like, oh, well, let's let let's prod him and see what happens. Because <laughs> we have this in reserve. Oh it is one God. of the most brutal annihilations in all of music and the funniest part though has to be you know a stop was put to it and then drake got to go around saying oh listen i mean it's a good thing that actually someone <laughs> intervened because what i had coming next you wouldn't believe and it was just like, yeah no yeah, total
1: nonsense.
2: <laughs> you got killed yeah can you remember the first time you heard it like what was your reaction like like were you just like eyes yeah. popping out of your head
1: i think it was like i woke up and i was checking my phone and i think it was um our good friend josh uh, Joshua who's who'd put it in like the chat with the artwork. So the first thing I saw was the the photo. And I was like, is this real? Is this photoshopped? I initially, yeah, I listened through it once through. And I was like, has Pusha T gone too far? Like, are people going to accept this? And of course, the world loved it. <laughs> it <was great>. <laughs> <laughs>
2: One of the greats. And that's yeah. our top five for this week. Patreon.com slash Nuancore. If you want to help support the show and help us continue to do epic things and dive into these epic, strange worlds in which people ultimately become friends at the end of it, right? I feel like we'd like a good hit list there in terms of like people actually making up or it ending okay for most people, yeah. perhaps. And so, who knows yeah. what'll happen to go back with and Drake and Pusha T. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? A, a joint's tour, perhaps, someday. This episode of No Encore was engineered by birthday boy, Sonic Architect, Adam Shanahan. Ooh. Thank you so much, Adam. We love you all the, we lo- all the ways. All the time. Where, all the way. Every <laughs> single saying, way we love you. Like,
1: where like, where <laughs> am I going with this? Uh,
2: in the other listening corner, uh, I haven't actually listened to that much, man. I really, really like the new Billy Eilish song. It's called My Future. As, as it's today. excellent. Yeah, very good. Dude, she cannot miss. Everything she does is fucking great.
1: Yeah, so on point. Um, Apart from I, that,
2: I've been listening to, like, horror movie podcasts because uh, I went back and I watched the original Hellraiser because, you know, that's a good horror film. It's weird how they never God, made any sequels, Hellraiser. though, isn't it? You know, I feel, I feel like there was a lot of room to explore there with that uh, <laughs> yeah. that 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 lead Cenobite guy, but we'll never know.
1: We will never know. Oh, the places, the terrible, terrible places they could have gone. But yeah, um, what have I been listening to? Billy Eilish, really good. Uh, I quite like the new Bon Iver song as well, which has a bit of, like, I think Bruce Springsteen mixed in and blah blah blah. It's some like um what is it? All they ate all the cake or something. It's some like abbreviated name. I can't think of it offhand. But it sounds good. So this has been helpful. Um but yeah, Billy Eilish, check it out guys if you haven't, as yet.
2: All right. And yeah, that's the show for this week. Um long one, good one. I enjoyed yes, it.
1: Yes. I'm spent, but in a good way. <laughs> <laughs>
2: My name is Dave Hanrae. His name is Craig Fitzpatrick. This has been the no encore. There will be no encore. We're back next week. This podcast is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network.